Now it's time to talk to the author of the year, Lee Child. He was born in Coventry, raised in Birmingham and now lives in New York. His most recent novel, Past Tense, was the 23rd to feature Jack Reacher and the biggest selling hardback novel of 2018. It's estimated that one of his novels is sold every nine seconds, which means a couple have changed hands even during my introduction. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Take us right back to the beginning. How did Jack Reacher first walk into your life? I worked in television. I had a great job for Granada Television in Manchester. I was there 18 years and loved every minute of it. Wonderful job. Uh, Until one day my boss said something to me that made it just impossible for me to continue. He said, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those... This was 1994, I suppose, and it was one of those mid-90s things where industry in general, it wasn't just me, I mean, hundreds of people in television, thousands of people elsewhere, millions of people around the world, they suddenly realized that this 39-year-old expensive veteran, you know, with a decent salary and pension and all that kind of thing, they could be replaced with either computers or graduates working for a tenth of the price. And um, happened to loads and loads of people. So there were three things to sort out immediately. Could I afford to retire at 39? And the answer to that was sadly no. And so secondly, what was I going to do? Um, I loved entertainment. I just That's all I've ever done. I just love the proposition that something I do can make somebody else happy. And so how could I stay in that world? The answer to that question was not immediately obvious, you know, mm. because... I was trained and experienced in a job that had just disappeared, and I really had no other skills. I was pretty much unemployable and also blacklisted in television because I'd been the union shop steward. Mm. So I had to get out of television. How could I find something else to do that still gave me that satisfaction, something I did would make somebody else happy? And so... I suddenly realized, well, I've been reading all my life. I'm just a passionate reader, habitual reader. And I thought, well, I've read so many books, maybe I should try writing one. So that's where it all came from. And then, of course, the next step is, okay, what about? So in a way, I wanted a situation that paralleled mine and millions of other people at the time, somebody who had been thrown out of what they were used to all their lives. So I developed the idea of maybe a a soldier of some kind, because, of course, in the 90s, the Soviet Union, having collapsed in 89-90, there was, in America especially, what they called reduction in force, Mm -hmm. where a lot of soldiers were getting laid off, essentially. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's the way to go. Plus, the idea of a soldier who maybe was previously a military brat, in other words, he's grown up in inside one universe, and now he's suddenly thrown into another universe that he has never seen before, doesn't understand. I thought that, yeah, that would be an interesting concept. You know, that would be probably cathartic for me, cathartic for a lot of other people. Uh, It would give me the bones of the story. But then, having worked in entertainment so long, I was thoroughly accustomed to the idea that we know nothing. You cannot plan anything. The more that you try to plan it, if you were to sit down and say, okay, I really need this to work because I've got to pay the rent and I've got to eat. Therefore, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And books are bought by lots of women aged, you know, 44 to 55. So I've got to satisfy them and I've got to satisfy this demographic. As soon as you go down that rabbit hole, you're lost completely. Mm. It has got to be done instinctively and organically. You've got to recognize that you, you cannot predict what the public's going to like. 
You've just got to do something organic and hope for the best. And so that's where Richard came from. In a way, he came from me with my eyes closed. I deliberately did not want to plan him. I, I just sat and wrote, and he's what came out. And to be honest, at the beginning, I thought, okay, you know, obviously I like this guy, but nobody else will, because if you look at him objectively, he's a sort of filthy, dirty barbarian, never <laughs> changes his clothes, you know, he cheats and lies and steals and shoots people in the back and all this kind of thing. But I think the organic nature, because I hadn't planned it, because I hadn't overthought it, I think his honesty and organic nature actually saved the day. And people did respond to him in a very passionate way. Mm -hmm. And so that's how he came about. And, you know, people say to me, how has he changed over the years? And my point is, I've tried to stop him changing over the years. Because being a huge reader myself, I love series. Mm -hmm. I love series fiction. And why do we love series fiction? It's because it's comfortable. It's familiar. It's like an old friend dropping in to visit. So actually, all my efforts over the subsequent years have been to stop him changing. Of course, then, you know, the author obviously changes. I've gotten older and so on. And so inevitably, Richard has changed a bit. But I try to, to keep him the same. Mm-hmm. It's such a perfect name for him. Did that, uh, did that arrive magically? Do you remember the moment? I, d- I totally remember the moment. And it was my wife's inspiration, actually, that um, I was stuck for a name. It's the one thing that I, I really struggle with, names. So, you know, my wife... We had a daughter at the time, we had a mortgage, we had all those kind of normal things. And she was brave about it. You know, she thought, she must have thought it was crazy. You know, (laughs) I'm going to write a book. Uh, But she went along with it. And I I was struggling for a name. And uh, I was unemployed, obviously. And the problem with being unemployed is that you're at home all the time. And therefore, you're deemed available for errands and Mm. help and so on. So... She said I had to go to the supermarket to um, help her haul stuff home because she's tiny. So we went to the supermarket, and inevitably, every time I'm in a supermarket, this, a little old lady comes up to me and says, oh, you're a nice tall gentleman. Would you reach me that box? So my wife said, you know what? If the writing gig doesn't work out, you could be a reacher in a supermarket. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is a pretty good name. That is an excellent name. You said reacher's in some ways not an attractive proposition, because I completely don't agree, because like loads of other women on the planet, I find him incredibly attractive. I've gone all slightly red just thinking about it. But um, he's, he's not exactly lawless, but he operates to his own moral code, doesn't he, rather than societies. Can you tell us what he believes in? Yeah, and it's quite a complicated feeling. You're absolutely right that that's what people respond to, the the moral compass. Uh, He will do what is right, Mm -hmm. even though it's probably against the law. In fact, I saw an internet... Uh, capsule description of my series it says this is a detective series where the detective commits more homicides than he solves (laughs) which is kind of true but he he does it for the exactly the right reasons it's the the heart of gold I suppose but it's it's slightly more complicated for Richard because there's an exchange in one of the earlier books where it's a flashback to his military days and one of his colleagues is saying why did you choose the military police you could have been anything you know you could have been delta force you could have been armored division and richard says something vague like oh you know i want to look out for the little guy mm-hmm. and his friend says really you care about the little guy and richard says not really i just hate the big guy <laughs> And that is, I think, the secret appeal of the series. This is a guy who will fight against those massive, powerful forces mm-hmm. that oppress us all. 
I've been enjoying these books for years and I did particularly when I was reading it yesterday I did feel of its time in the sense that don't we all just all long for someone who could come and clean up a bit absolutely we do especially now I think but we always have you know mm. it's an old paradigm this and it stretches way back through the westerns in America through the uh, medieval sagas of Europe, mm -hmm. the Scandinavian sagas, you could even say, you know, the Greek myths, you could even say religious myths, you know, the arrival of the savior, that somebody shows up, solves the problem, and then crucially rides off into the sunset, because it has to be a transitory thing. If the guy sticks around, that complicates the whole story. And in fact, I think in all of narrative history, there's only one time where this guy has stuck around, and that's the Pied Piper of Hamelin. He sticks around because he wasn't paid, mm -hmm. and then it's mayhem afterwards. So it's a very important part of the myth that the guy is transient. Um, so, again, Reacher fits that bill. He is constitutionally unable to stay in one place. He, he has this compulsion to, to wander, a compulsion to own nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes him even more mythic, in a sense, because it is fundamentally unrealistic. It, he is, therefore, both on the page a real character in the 21st century, but also very much a mythic survival from the past. And because you know he's ultimately going to save things, it means you can enjoy the peril in the novel. <laughs> yeah. But and, you know it's going to be okay. Yeah, and isn't that absolutely the fundamental uh, promise of most thriller fiction, mm -hmm. really? That, And it's, again, a very human instinct. And I remember this very clearly when my daughter was a baby. There was this thing I used to do with her where... She'd be in the bath, and I would get pick her up out of the bath and pretend to drop her and then catch her, you know, a couple of feet down, mm -hmm. you know, catch her at the last minute, and she would just scream with pleasure. I do think that is a very basic human thing. We love peril mm -hmm. as long as we know it's going to be all right. <laughs> in your speech last night, you spoke movingly of your appreciation of your agent, publisher and editor and publicist. And I wonder, do you enjoy the process of publication? I absolutely love it, yeah. I mean, it is hard to to say that writing is uh, entirely collaborative because obviously the meat of it, most of it is done as, in a very solitary fashion. You sit there and you write the book, but then it's launched into a mechanism where there are dozens of people passionately supporting the book with great technique and great expertise. And that goes all the way down to booksellers, you know, from the very top of the publishing companies to the humblest bookseller behind the register. Mm. Everybody is committed to the proposition that um, we should give books to the public because they're going to enjoy it. And I, I love being part of that. I, I love watching something done well. And there are a lot of moving parts in publishing, the cover, the book design, uh, absolutely everything. And, and it's done so well, and it gives me a great deal of pleasure to watch it being done well. So I really revel in that, actually, that, uh, you know, at the awards show last night, uh, everybody was there from the CEOs at the very top to the most junior publicists and designers and copy editors and this and that. And they all play a role. And I, I really like being with them, you know, the committed professionals. Sadly, one would have to say they're not in it for the money. Um, <laughs> and that's a good thing in a way from my point of view because they're just they're there because they love it. Mm -hmm. uh, and hanging around people like that is a pleasure. Your next book is Blue Moon out this autumn. Can you give us any hints? Yeah, there was a book a, a while ago called One Shot that I set in a city that was quite well described but never specified. And Blue Moon is the same. I'm imagining it as a 
medium-sized city of maybe half a million people in the southeastern part of the United States, but I didn't specify which one because I didn't want to cloud the picture with specificity. It's big enough that it has two organized crime gangs. One is Ukrainian, one is Albanian. And alongside them, there's an old couple who have a problem. Their daughter gets sick. They find suddenly she doesn't have medical insurance because of a glitch. And so they have to borrow money from a loan shark for her treatment. And then they have to borrow more and more and more. And suddenly they're right up to their eyes with these gangsters. Reacher happens to stumble into that situation. And let's just say by the end of the book, they don't owe any more money. (laughs) So plenty of peril, but I can read it knowing that hopefully Reacher will save the day again. I think he probably will, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he'll remain transient forever. All these women that throw themselves at him won't manage to keep him staying in the same place. No, I mean, it actually, I sort of explored that at the end of Blue Moon. You know, he's always going to move on. And this time he says to the girl, well, come with me as a sort of challenge, and she says no. And so, once again, poor old Reach is on his own. There you go, but I must say, if he asked me to go with him, then I probably would. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in to chat to us. Yeah, real pleasure, thanks. We'll look forward to all the future books.